Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, hello, Ward. Welcome welcome to the land of uh, self-done haircuts. Yeah, you're looking good. I know you were freaking out a few weeks ago because it was the longest you'd gone between haircuts since I Day, I guess, right? Isn't that what you were saying? Yeah, it, I was freaking out. It's been, but you know, now it's been three months. But I'm doing my own like self cut every once a week or so, and you know, I I have to impress the large audience here at my house. So, you know, nobody gives a nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> I know they do, but when when you get to be my age, you don't have to worry about that because I'm just like bald and my hair doesn't grow, so I don't have to worry about that. So yesterday was the final of these the quintiles of graduation at the Naval Academy. And uh, the last was treated to a flyover by the Blue Angels and uh, saw a video that the uh, Naval Academy Public Affairs Office put out. In fact, I made a GIF of it and put it on my Twitter feed. But uh, really, really a cool, moving uh, tribute there. That was that was kind of nice, making the best of a bad situation. Yeah, that was pretty cool. And um, as you mentioned the other day, it looks like the whole class of 2020, they've now thrown their hats in the air. Uh, but they all have a data rank of tomorrow or tr- the 22nd of uh, of May, and then they will be all officially ensigns and second lieutenants. And we've been talking about that a lot at the Naval Academy, but uh, because you know Beach Hall, the Naval Institute headquarters is on the academy, uh, but we're hearing similar things uh, as we were talking about how the plebe summer class would come in. The squibs, I think they're called, at the Coast Guard Academy. We, I was reading uh, some USNI news reporting today that the incoming class of 2024 at the Coast Guard Academy is going to have a similar experience as they come in. They're going to be asked uh, to self-quarantine before they come uh, to New London, just like the incoming class of midshipmen at the Academy, quarantine themselves for as much as they can for 14 days. And when they show up, another uh, quarantine where they get sort of uh, academic uh, kind of training, you know, low on the physical environment for the first couple of weeks. And then plebe summer or squib or squab summer uh, starts for good. And then, you know, they go right into the, the more arduous training that we all associated with the first, uh, you know, incoming summer of uh, service academy or RTC or, you know, that kind of a program. So, um, and also uh, Admiral Bucket was quoted as saying that uh, the Naval Academy had learned some lessons from Recruit Training Center up at uh, Great Lakes that as they've been able to ramp up uh, the RTC input from 500 or so uh, you know, new seamen recruits uh, per class, now back up to about 750, um, some of those lessons are starting to percolate out into the rest of the Navy about how to take people in. Uh, to commissioning sources or to A schools and you know training programs that sort of thing. So how to how to bring people in for a, for a program of uh, training without you know uh, getting everybody sick or without you know spreading the virus uh, more than needs to be done. Yeah, and to that point, we normally have each platoon of the plebes come by Beach Hall, our headquarters on the Naval Academy grounds for a introduction to the Naval Institute and a scene setter about the profession. We won't be doing that during the summer this year. We got word from the uh, 06 who's in charge of Plebe Summer, but they're hoping to do their Saturday morning training during fall semester, assuming that fall semester is not still distance learning. Um, so we'll be able to talk to the new class uh, at that time. So uh, we'll look forward to spending our Saturday mornings in the yard somewhere 
this fall, vice them coming to us during plebe summer. So, you know, audibles all over the place and, uh, We'll we'll do what we got to do to get it done. Got one more thing to, to talk about before we get to our guest, which is, uh, and this is in line with uh, our discussion about the Blue Angels flyover at Annapolis uh, yesterday. But we uh, we published the first ever online only piece of Naval History magazine today, uh, and it was a piece. It is a piece about uh, the legacy or the tradition of uh, flyovers, military flyovers, written by Major Miranda Summers Lowe. Uh, D.C. National Guard, former uh, Army air crewman. Uh, she flew H-60 helicopters in the uh, in the Army. She also works at the uh, Smithsonian Institution, American uh, Museum of American History. And so she writes for us uh, from time to time. Uh, she's also a great friend of the Naval Institute. But she wrote this great piece called Praise from Above, the Tradition of the American Military Flyover. Uh, it's on Naval History Magazine. It's a great piece. Yeah, we've also had Miranda on the podcast. We'll remind our regular listeners. So we've been working our way around the fleet. In the May issue, we have year in review, which we always do in our May Naval Review issue. So we've done Merchant Marine. Yesterday, Paul Kingsbury and I were talking to Mick Pog about the Coast Guard, and we talked a lot about what was teed up by Joe Dorenzo in the Coast Guard year in review. And now we're going to do what is arguably the best of the features the Naval Aviation Year in Review. Bill, why don't you introduce our highly qualified guests? The authors of the review this year, uh, Captain Thomas Jethro Bodine, joining us from Virginia Beach, Virginia. Jethro is the PDCAG, or the Prospective Deputy Air Wing Commander for Carrier Air Wing 7, uh, based at NAS Oceana. And his co-author is uh, Commander Guy Buss Snodgrass, and uh, Buss has been on the podcast a couple of times before. Uh, Buss is a member of the Board of Directors of the Naval Institute, former member of the uh, editorial board of the Naval Institute, was a uh, F-18 Super Hornet Squadron CEO and uh, and also a Top Gun instructor. And Jethro also was a Top Gun instructor. So, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast and thanks for writing the uh, Naval Aviation Year in Review. Uh, thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. You bet. Thanks, Bill. So, uh, Jethro, let's just start with you. You're down at uh, Oceana. You're going through the RAG at VFA 106, uh, relearning how to fly the Super Hornet. You just said, uh, as we were warming up here, uh, that a lot has changed in the jet. Uh, so tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the, the training you're going back through. You said a cat- Category 3 syllabus, and what, what kinds of things are changing in the, the Super Hornet community? Lots of changes within the Super Hornet community, at least over the last three years uh, since I last flew that great bird. Uh, big things are, are software changes, but with those software changes become uh, our enhanced capabilities. Uh, I left with a software configuration known as H10. We're now up to H14. Uh, and with that uh, comes a, a complete redesign of the internal displays and how data is presented to you. That's kind of on the external cockpit human interface portion of it. Uh, the guts of it is where really the magic happens, and uh, that's where we've upgraded some processing, streamlined some coding uh, to make it easier to upgrade in the future, but also uh, to help uh, um, correlate information uh, together and present it in a manner that is uh, easily digestible from the pilot or the air crew in the cockpit. So that's, uh, that's the big thing, and uh, from kind of just the straight straight. Uh, aircraft and system perspective, 
uh, from a neighbor, bigger Navy system-wide. Uh, also, as you're looking at all the incorporation of net-centric weapons and, and then incorporating some of the other NIFCA-type ideas, the uh, Navy uh, uh, fire control uh, kind of system of system networks on how we plan on, you know, uh, taking on near-peer adversaries in the future. So uh, lots of good changes, lots of big things, lots of things for me for me to learn for sure, uh, along with changes to the uh, systems and hardware in the jet. There's also comes the requisite changes with tactics with those fine instructors up at Top Gun, keeping us sharp and uh, keeping me on my toes as I have to relearn uh, the new tactics. Uh, so, yeah, good, good stuff going through the rag. So what are the VFA squadrons in CAG-7? Uh, I should have looked this up. Uh, so I know my old squadron 103 is in the uh, is in there. I know your old squadron award is in there with 143, and then they're uh, doing some changing, uh, some ISIC changes with a couple of the other squadrons in there uh, in between now and when I kind of take over. Uh, so I, I, I would have to get back to you to, to label the rest. <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot. But w- which carrier are you guys going to be on? Right now, slated to go on the Bush. Okay. Uh, they just got back from the Ike, though. Uh, CAG-7 was on the uh, historic 10-month, 296-day uh, cruise that just got back uh, late uh, or early summer this year. Roger that. So you guys do a good scene setter at the outset here. Uh, Bus talk about 80 for, 80% FMC, uh, talk about uh, OBOX uh, episodes, um, et cetera. So... Uh, Let's let's set let's start there, and then we'll work our way through uh, through Ford and and so forth. Like you mentioned, I mean that was really when we when Jethro and I talked about this article. Um, I think the Department of Defense has done a really nice job of tying everything that is occurring right now back to the 2018 National Defense Review, or excuse me, National Defense Strategy. And so that's you know one of the lines we used there was that the world to watch and change. There's so many things happening, and of course that's before COVID-19 pandemic hit. So there were a few things that were real big movers and drivers for naval aviation over the last couple of years, one of which was former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis uh, basically decreeing that he wanted to see all the aircraft readiness hit an 80 percent readiness rate so that we could get planes flying again. You could help get away from what the Airbus had previously described as a situation of haves and have nots when it came to flight hours and opportunities to advance in the training syllabus. So that's the, the huge mover. And, and the nice thing about that is that not only just with naval aviation, you've seen across the board, everyone seems to be jumping onto the national defense strategy bandwagon as as they should be. So I think that's uh, that's where we wanted to start. We wanted to paint that high level picture of what's most important to naval aviation. And then, like you mentioned, we start diving into some more specifics throughout the article. One of the earliest episodes of the podcast, Bill and I went to the Pentagon to talk to the air boss. It was Mike Shoemaker at the time. Uh, and that's when OBOG's was uh, sort of resolved. So for the audience, what was the bottom line smoking gun? What, how did we solve, quote unquote, that, that issue? There was no smoking gun. Uh, so you had this, a similar OBOG system in the T-45s and then the F-18 and the EA-18. They're similar, but not exactly the same. Um, and so when you take a look at the T-45 incident, what they found was uh, generally most of the PE episodes, as they're uh, known as, uh, were due to uh, insufficient inflow pressure from the OBOG system. So there was an engineering change there uh, that they put in place along with uh, just some cleanup of uh, training of how to do 
routine maintenance hygiene for that system that pretty much cured it for the T45. And in fact, uh, since kind of 2017, after they implemented those changes, uh, the PE rate uh, within the T45s has dropped off by about 95%. So a huge success story there. Uh, the F-18, different story. Again, no smoking gun and really twofold pressure. There was kind of the OBOGS delivery system, which is putting oxygen into your body. And then there was a pressurization system because those two systems in the aircraft are combined. Uh, and what they found that the pressurization system uh, issues were due to unanticipated component failures. Uh, and what the Navy did was actually a big success is they started using uh, big data and data analytics uh, to actually project forward uh, um, all the data they were receiving from jets and go, hey, this component is subperforming, so it is due to fail, so let's replace it right now. Uh, and uh, that has been a huge success story uh, because what we've seen uh, based off the implementation of that is you see about a 60% reduction in PEs within the F-18 because we're using that predictive analytics at this point. Yeah, Jethro uh, makes a great point, and that's one I wanted to, to basically foot stomp on. And that is just – so I happen to be the executive assistant to Rear Admiral – then Rear Admiral Bruce Lindsay when he was Airland, right? So he was in charge of not only kind of the aircraft carriers and the readiness for aircraft on the uh, Eastern Hemisphere, but he also kind of took the lead on the PE issues. And so we, we saw a lot of the data coming in and Jethro hit the nail on the head, which was uh, finding pathways to aggregate as much data as possible, now put together a very holistic review of what that data shows you so you can be predictive. And I like it, too, because it dovetails very nicely with what another organization, the Joint Artificial Intelligence Center, is focused on, which is that predictive maintenance for aircraft. So yet again, you're seeing like these really nice similarities that exist between not only naval aviation using some best-in-class capabilities, but those are starting to permeate into the U.S. Air Force, into the Joint AI Center, and elsewhere. And I think that's where you're going to see writ large as we move the next three to five years into the future, you're going to see a lot of naval aviation turning to big data for solutions, uh, very thoughtful, deliberate design processes as they look to use analytics to not only improve supply chain management, but also training and simulator usage. Let's talk about Ford real quick. Very high vis system, $13 billion is uh, you guys quote in the article. High visibility issues with emails, and most lately, it's been the weapons elevator. So what's the status of that, that program? Uh, I think it is uh, tracking, uh, I think is the word. I, I don't think anybody, uh, I don't think you hear anybody in the Navy say they are satisfied with where it's at. Uh, there is a lot of visibility into it. Um, I know uh, as of writing the article, they had four of the 11 elevators. I don't know uh, what... Uh, the status of the remaining elevators are at this point in time. Uh, I can tell you that the they completed deck cert uh, back in March, and in fact, just this past week, uh, they had their first actual CQ debt for uh, FRS Cat ones, uh, going getting ready to go to the fleet. Uh, successfully completed that with all the Cat ones uh, actually qualifying. So, so that's good. They finished up with 106 uh, and some uh, 120 VAW folks, uh, and then they headed down south and were doing a, either are doing or finishing up a VT uh, CQ event as well. So uh, she is, uh, she is uh, value added to the uh, entire naval aviation enterprise uh, in that respect. So, Buzz, from a pilot's point of view, 
Um, what do we know about what Ford looks like from three quarters of a mile? Is it drastically different than a Nimitz class? Um, is the burble different? What have we heard anecdotally about trying to land on Ford? The placement of the island has changed. It's further aft and a little bit further outboard. They wanted to create more flight deck surface area to help facilitate this um, this design philosophy that uh, then in 98, uh, at the time it was Rear Admiral Bill Moran, who later became you know chief of naval personnel and then subsequently vice CNO. But uh, you know, they had this NASCAR style of wanting to be able to more expeditiously when aircraft recover, you can you can sideline them, get them reloaded with weapons and ordnance. You can get them refueled quickly and then back up in the air. So your sortie generation rate could be quicker than it has been in the past and with the Nimitz class carrier. One thing that was announced this week that I think we want to keep an eye on is the shock trials are currently on schedule for 2021 timeframe. That's something that there was a little bit of wailing and gnashing of teeth about the 2016-17 timeframe. There were certainly just a few concerns because you have uh, two two systems of note to watch for the shock trials. One's going to be, of course, the EMOLS system for the electromagnetic uh, aircraft launch system. The other one will be those same weapon elevators that Jethro mentioned. Both are met- electromagnetically driven. And you know, when you think back to around the 2014 timeframe, before I headed to Japan as an executive officer, I had a chance to go with then executive officer for the Ford, Captain Bailey. And, you know, tour the ship, stand on top of the reactor before it had gone critical, take a look at when they were laying down the EMOLS tracks. And one of the concerns that's been prevalent is this design, you know, everything has to be aligned uh, to a a significant degree. And if it comes out of alignment, you've got to realign the systems. So that'll be something I'm sure everyone's going to want to keep an eye on as they do shock trials to see, does it have any kind of effect on the ability to launch and recover aircraft or to move those elevators up and down? Yeah, I'm curious, uh, related to emails and also the advanced arresting gear, uh, Jethro, you may have heard from, from guys who are flying Hornets now. What's it feel like? Is it different? Is the is the catapult shot feel different? Does uh, the, the arrestment feel different on the Ford than it does on a Nimitz? Yeah, the shot, uh, all indications are the shot does not, at least from in the cockpit, I think from uh, seasoned aviators who are uh, used to hearing the shot and then the, the water break at the boom of the uh, cat track. Uh, that stops the actual plunger below decks. Uh, you don't get that, and so that's weird for the seasoned aviator on the cat shot, but in the cockpit, you, know, you don't notice a difference. Uh, landing, there is a, again, for seasoned aviators, we'll notice a difference. The placement of the uh, the island right next to the wire, so right next to the L.A., uh, gives you a bit of a different sight picture and a bit of a different uh, ground rush as you're crossing over into the wires. Uh, and then one of the things programmed into the Ford, different from the Nimitz, is the, the pullout from whatever wire you catch on the Ford class ends at essentially the same spot. So you're going to get some different Gs. But what that does is it allows for faster removal from the L.A., again, speeding up that sortie generation rate. So you're going to see uh, a couple of different pullouts uh, or feel a couple of different pullouts, but you're always going to end in the same spot. So, so those aviators who are used to Judging uh, what wire they caught by how far down the LA they stopped at uh, will be uh, will have to change the way they their method for, for determining the wire they caught. You've never had a cat shot until you've done cat four on Indy in a sixty eight thousand pound Tomcat. That was a cat shot, my my friends. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I did that. I did it in an A on cat four on the uh, the Big E, and that was that was something for sure. Yeah. I, there was something different about Cat Ford on Indy that it was it was a shorter stroke for one thing, and it was like really jarring, and it would always dump the IMU every time. 
Bus, what do you got? Yeah, I just uh, I know we've got some other ground to cover, but one thing I was going to mention, and this gets back to the kind of macro strategic level stuff that naval aviation and naval aviators want to keep an eye on, and that is just this perennial battle that's really been going on the last two to three years within the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, specifically the DepSecDef. So even during then Deputy Secretary of Defense Pat Shanahan's time frame, you know, there were pretty heavy discussions about whether or not they would accept a two-carrier buy, how many carriers were now appropriate, um, you know, kind of a little bit of a buildup of steam behind this concept that, you know, maybe the tech carrier's time has come and gone. I don't think you're going to find many people who will argue that the carrier winds up still being the most versatile platform. Uh, you, you could do so much with it that goes beyond just launch and recovery of manned aircraft. But at the same time, it, as you mentioned, it's an expensive platform. So beyond the shock trials in 2021, we'll want to keep an eye on the next two years, I think, of the uh, POM cycle for the budget to see what gets proposed for the future of uh, aircraft carriers that are coming down the line. If they start to tail back a little bit on the on the total numbers or if we continue to manufacture to try to meet that congressionally mandated uh, number of 12. So to that point, we have four Ford class funded, correct? That That's uh, Ford, Kennedy, Enterprise, and the Doris Miller. Those are in the program of record. Is that correct, Buzz? Uh, you're starting to stretch a little bit of my knowledge. I know that there were there were desires and there were implementations made to do advanced funding so that you could start getting not only some continuity for Huntington Ingalls, right, the prime for construction of an aircraft carrier. Uh, you also wanted to try and work through Congress to to lay the groundwork so it would be more difficult to unravel that. But there's been a lot of discussion uh, at Secretary Esper's level, uh, also with the current Deputy Secretary of Defense, Bob Norquist, about you know, where are they going to put precious defense dollars? Um, you know, I'd had a conversation with Bob Work maybe about a month ago at this point. And one of the things that we were discussing was what is the impact of coronavirus pandemic? Obviously, there's been a fairly significant economic toll on the country. There's a fiscal cost that we're going to have to we're going to have to come to terms with with future defense budgets. And so I don't think you're going to see a continuation of seven hundred and fifty billion dollar budgets. And, you know, add infinitum into the future. So we're going to have to take a hard look at what do future budgets look like. And then now that it becomes a more pressurized environment and you've got that giant price tag attached to a capital ship. What does that mean? So there'll be, of course, tough choices to make. Yeah. And if, if I could just uh, tag on there, obviously, uh, the agreement was uh, for the for the contract for the two carrier by uh, advanced procurement. As you would know, a carrier requires a lot of raw materials. So you got to start buying that early. Kill lane for the Doris Miller is not supposed to be until 2026, as it stands right now. Anything beyond the next fiscal year uh, is uh, written in sand anyway when it comes to budgetary money. So we have the uh, authority through Congress for the uh, two-carrier buy. There is advanced procurement in place. But uh, to say that that couldn't be unwound, I think, is probably uh, going too far. Yeah, it's all good points about the uh, Ford-class carriers uh, going forward. Uh, let's move on now to uh, talk about strike fighter aircraft. And Jethro, you mentioned you're talk, you know, getting our Cat 3 syllabus to go back into the Super Hornet. But let's start with the F-35 program for the Navy and, and the Marine Corps. So um, will your first for you, will, will your air wing, will Carrier Air Wing 7 have F-35s in it by the time you get to be DCAG and CAG? No, unfortunately, uh, by the time I'm CAG and then through my time as CAG, we, we will still be an all Super Hornet uh, carrier air wing. Uh, 147 is uh, the Argonauts out in Lemoore is the first uh, uh, Navy F-35 Charlie squadron 
and then all subsequent squadrons, at least through the next couple of years, will be uh, uh, prioritized to the West Coast or Japan. Well, it was interesting. You guys also highlighted the fact that uh, a Marine Corps F-35B squadron is going to uh, do a cross-deck with the Queen Elizabeth. That would be an awesome deployment. That would be very fun. So right now, the Marine Corps is kind of leading the way with uh, with F-35s, both uh, the Bs and the Cs, correct? Well, as you say, overall, that, that was correct, but that was also by design. That was decided during uh, Admiral Jonathan Greenert's uh, tenure as the Chief of Naval Operations. I was on his staff at that point in time. And, you know, there were still, if you think back to around the 2013-14 timeframe, there were still some questions about uh, program maturity and uh, the level of the block of software and what would the Navy get. And so there was a conscious decision to defer a little bit to the right so that both the Air Force and the Marine Corps would, would one, have the ability to get their aircraft faster because they were in greater demand with those two services. It also provided the Navy a chance to, to let some of the other services kind of do some of the, the alpha and beta testing, if you will, um, so that the program, when it hit the Navy, would be a little bit more mature. And so I think, Jethro, you had something? Yeah, I would just say that the Navy's leading the charge on the F-35 Charlie. The Marines uh, of the MFA-314 is going to be the first Charlie squadron for those guys. And uh, I think it was just last year that the Marines decided to up their buy of F-35 Charlies. But uh, the Marine Corps for sure is leading the way on the F-35 Bravo fight as well as, well as bringing the F-35 IOC to the, uh, to the naval enterprise. Got it. So for our listeners, the F-35B is the V-stall version of the F-35, which is uh, they've already done some operational deployments. The USS America, for example, made a West Coast uh, Pacific deployment with F-35Bs. And for the F-35C, so that's the for the Marine Corps be either ground or carrier based, just as for the for the Navy will be uh, carrier based uh, F-35s. Will there be a, a common Navy Marine Corps replacement air group so that they are the frs squadron uh, out at lemoore will that take both f-35c pilots for the marines and and the navy yeah yes that is the plan that the charlie will be trained up in uh, lemoore uh, variants for both the navy and the marine corps and then the marine bravos will be trained in uh, uh miramar that's not to say that there won't be f-35 charlies in miramar because i think what the marine corps is finding is that Maybe the Charlie with the bigger gas tanks is better for training because it's got a little longer legs. So they may have some of those down there strictly for training, um, uh, strictly for training their pilots up. Well, well, speaking of that, as a Tomcat guy, we were always uh, amazed at how gas critical the Legacy Hornet was. How, how does the uh, Lightning II compare to a Super Hornet in terms of, of basic endurance? I think if you look at the charts, it's uh, slightly better, uh, slightly better with regards to combat radius. Um, obviously, that that is the Charlie variant, the Bravo, uh, which is really meant to replace the Harrier and the Legacy Hornet. It's still doing better combat radius-wise than the uh, than either to either one of those aircraft. And something for our listeners to consider, you know, despite the fact that the range is comparable, maybe a little better. Uh, you still have some sea power proponents like Captain Jerry Hendricks who would say, you know, he had a paper a few years back called Retreat from Range where he expressed some concern that regardless, I mean, the the effective range of a carrier 
strike group, at least the aircraft, is still shorter than many would desire. And especially when you think about today's contested environment, when you think about anti-access area denial capabilities, uh, whether it's in the Gulf or in the Indo-Pacific. Um, so again, that'll be one more thing we'll want to keep an eye on as you take a very capable platform like the aircraft carrier and not only use your manned platforms, but future unmanned platforms to hopefully continue to find ways to extend that range so uh, you keep it relevant and in the fight. So, Buss, on that on that topic, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Later in your article, you get to the unmanned aircraft. But let's talk for a second about MQ-25 because the MQ-25 is is designed to ameliorate that problem, right? Getting gas in the air, lightening up some of the load for the Super Hornets that have been, since the S-3 went away, have been the uh, the carrier air wing, uh, airborne, you know, or carrier-based uh, tanker aircraft. So what's the status of MQ-25? How soon will those start to get to the fleet? And how soon will the Super Hornets start to get out of the uh, uh, air-to-air refueling role? Not due to get to the fleet until 2025, I believe, is the uh, timeline right now. Uh, That's on an accelerated timeline. Uh, That is only for four. I think the overall uh, plan of record is calling for five uh, per air wing when uh, the program is fully mature. But I would not expect to see, um, um, you know, the MQ-25 leaving the Super Hornet anytime in the near future with regards to air-to-air refueling uh, duties. It, it'll be shared uh, for a while, but uh, Super Hornet uh, uh, will be well within the Exxon business for, for a long, long time. I will say, if we just circle back, I think uh, forgotten in this discussion, because I think the discussion about range is a big deal. The Navy's uh, NGAD or uh, FAXX program, uh, part of the mandate as they started looking for uh, their analysis of alternatives was to increase that range. And I think the Navy is well aware of uh, the uh, the issues BUS brought up um, and is looking to solve that, not just from platforms on the carrier itself, but then the weapons that you put on the platforms so it's a twofold process, and you have to look at both of them in combination to overcome those issues. So and is, the Navy's doing so platform side, uh, platform wise, with the with the uh, MQ-25, and then uh, the NGAD, and then uh, you know some of their LRASM and some of the other weapons uh, from that from the weapons capability side as well. So NGAD is the airplane after. The next F-35? generation air dominance fighter in NGAD stands for next generation air dominance fighter. It was re- referred uh, at one point as the FAXX program. However, uh, when the Navy went about it, they went kind of in combination with the Air Force, but not along the same route as the Air Force. Uh, and the mandate was to share technologies, but not share the same platform. So we're not looking for an F-4 or an F-35 but we're looking for the guts in each of those to be common across so that we find some savings in that respect. But the, the outer mold line and what it does doesn't have to be exactly the same. And this is a manned airplane? Uh, as of it stands right now, uh, manned or optionally manned, I think is uh, what they're looking at. Optionally manned. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Bus, let's, uh, let's motor on to the uh, Hawkeye. All fighter guys love their AEW... Uh, dude, so we're kind of at a 50-50 split in the fleet now uh, between C's and D's, which actually surprised me. I thought we had more D's by now. Um, what does the D do in basically that the C doesn't do? What are the improvements in that airplane? 
Yeah, the biggest improvement between the D and the C is going to be in your airborne radar capability, uh, much higher fidelity, um, you know, using phase array capability, and then also the way that it consumes that information and then turns around and, and displays it back to the controllers that are in the back of that plane. So uh, much better fidelity, much better discrimination, as you would say, right? The ability to separate two contacts that are closely spaced together with each other. Uh, and then now, you know, when you fly in the back of an E2C, depending on whether or not it's got some upgraded avionics, I mean, it's, it's got great capability, but the E2D is going to advance that significantly where you can uh, exert greater control. And in some respects, it's going to give you a much better situational awareness of the battle space so that it restores the E2's capability to really direct traffic, to be able to direct the intercepts as the fights are going on. Yeah, I can tell you from at least the CAG-5 perspective with the E2C, you started running into a situation where you had the latest and greatest Super Hornets, which which had a fantastic phase array radar, and then the E2C was, you know, it was tougher for them to be able to direct the overall battle space because you might see something in your Super Hornet before they saw it in the uh, E2C. So with the E2D, you're restoring that balance. You're getting them back in the, uh, you know, in the controlling seat to be able to really have phenomenal discrimination and to direct the course of the fight. Also tied in with uh, NIFCA, what uh, Jethro was talking about earlier, the Naval Integrated Fire Control uh, Capability. Yeah, and I, I was purposely vague because I, since I've been out of the cockpit for two years, I'm not sure exactly what's public and not. <laughs> so over gotcha. to Jethro for gotcha. NIFCA. Yeah, uh, they, they are a key piece to NIFCA, and, uh, and I'll leave it at that. I will say that it is a generational advance uh, from the E2C to the E2D. And I think that is uh, uh, from all the capabilities that uh, Bus highlighted. But uh, I think you'll see that kind of uh, tip of the hat to that uh, from Big Navy with the uh, the renaming from Airborne Early Warning to Airborne Command and Control Squadron. So uh, I think that is re- reflective of what uh, the all the new capabilities uh, inherent into E2D that maybe weren't there with the E2C. We'll keep the podcast unclassed this time. Um, <laughs> so let's uh, let's motor on to uh, the Rotary Wing uh, community. Uh, let's talk about the Seahawk. We talk about the Seahawk. There's two major variants that we think about. There's the Romeo and the Sierra. Uh, the Romeo is going to be the one that's really about uh, superiority at sea with anti-surface, anti-submarine. You can do electromagnetic uh, detection of submarines. And then you've got the Sierra, which is going to be uh, largely centered around combat search and rescue, logistics, uh, and that's that's where it's going to lie. And I thought it was interesting uh, talking with some friends in N98 when we really started spinning up both the Romeo and Sierra lines for production. That was only made possible because the Army had stepped away from the Blackhawk line. Uh, they wanted to reduce the numbers that they were going to purchase, and so that left the doorway open for the Navy to assume production and say, hey, we can get it. We can get it at a great cost, and this fits perfectly into that master aviation plan. So I thought that was a great example for a win that can exist when you uh, work well between two services to coordinate your procurement systems. And uh, the V-22 is taking over as the COD, uh, which uh, that program near and dear to my heart. I worked in that program office with my first job out of the Navy for three years. Um, so it's great to see that coming to be a real thing. How, how's that going? You know, it's going well overall. I've, uh, you know, when I was leaving at Sugi as the commanding officer, we had quite a few uh, MV-22s come through. The pilots, the crews loved them. Uh, very versatile aircraft, give you uh, better range, better speed and capability. 
And it sounds like not only is the integration with the aircraft carrier going well, uh, but they've been, uh, you know, greatly appreciated. And if you've ever taken a ride in the C2, I think you can probably see why, because it's obviously the latest and greatest technology, uh, and it's going to be really uh, nice for them. And of course, they've got uh, VRM-30, the Titans, going to be home base out of Naval Air Station North Island. And we're going to start seeing the uh, first operational CMV-22s being delivered this summer. Uh, so looking forward to seeing those get online. And is the priority there to get the CMV-22 to the Pacific Air Forces, or will it be uh, both coasts at the same time? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure if they've changed pace in the last year or so, but originally the design was it for most of the advanced technologies to be delivered to the West Coast first, solely because it was reflective of not only the 2018 National Defense Strategy, but also the nation's overall national security strategy to start prioritizing capability and capacity for the Indo-Pacific. And the last thing you guys talk about is weapons and avionics. What's, uh, what's happening in, in, you talk about specifically three weapon system. What, what's, uh, what's going on with those things? The LRASM is uh, kind of the Navy's, uh, Navy's answer to the A2AD uh, issue um, uh, presented, uh, presented to the fleets today. And so, Operational on the B-1, which was a big success to make sure that the Air Force is involved in that fight. But uh, uh, that was it first became operational on that with an EOC, early operational capability. And then uh, early last year, uh, or rather late last year, uh, it became early operational capable on the F-18 as well. And so um, that uh, that is a, as we were talking earlier about uh, what the carrier brings, to the fight with regards to, and what is the range of those things? Uh, this is a big component of it. So I think it's a big win. The Navy is, uh, you know, the LRASM initially developed out of a urgent need request back in 2013. Uh, the Navy has developed, uh, some more heads in that respect, but is continuing to uh, only improve upon that design, uh, and, uh, continue to increase the numbers within the fleet. Is that a is that a weapon that can also go on the P eight? Yeah, it is not currently uh, designed to go on the P eight, nor can the P eight carry it. Although this year uh, there was a request to industry uh, from Naval Air Systems uh, for a whole host of weapons to be included, uh, incorporated onto the P eight. The LRASM was one of them. Some uh, JDAM as well as uh, some uh, mines as well. So I think uh, we didn't talk about the P eight, but I think there's a lot of growth potential. Uh, within that community, and we'll see again as as we look more towards the maritime domain, uh, the the capabilities of that platform, both from a sensor perspective and from a weapons uh, perspective, is going to be critical to uh, how the Navy fights future wars. We also didn't talk about the Growler per se, but uh, another system you guys talk about at the end here is the next generation Jammer. What's that all about? Yeah, you know, much like when we talked about that generational leap from the E2C to the E2D Hawkeye. You're talking about that same type of capability for the Growler when you go from the current existing jamming capabilities and jamming pod to that next generation jammer. So it's going to give the fleet a much better capability, not only to discriminate from electronic signals that are inbound, uh, that are being collected, but also more importantly, uh, a really nice response capability. So that, and again, there's a lot of stuff you could get into that would rapidly get into the classified realm, but uh, just much better capability for discrimination, handling multiple, uh, you know, waveforms simultaneously, and being able to uh, put 
different types of jamming techniques downrange in order to uh, confound the enemy. And the nice thing about the next-gen jammer, it's been talked about for a while, it's, it's currently slated for uh, delivery in IOC around the uh, end of 2022. So it's, it's just around the corner. It's coming soon. And then the last system is a IRST Block 2. Um, so, in, you know, for those who aren't aware of that technology, passive sensors are great because you don't spike, you don't, uh, uh, the, the enemy doesn't know that they're being targeted, so um, they can't react. Um, so that's a very desirable capability. The D had an IRST, the F-14D. I've never flown with an IRST, but uh, that would certainly be a great capability to have. So talk to us about that. Well, an interesting bit of trivia there is that the initial testing for the Super Hornets first uh, was done with the old Earths from the Tomcat uh, Ds. Uh, that is not what's going to actually be outfitted in the fleet. There's going to be upgrades, as you would expect. Uh, but the the Earths capability has gone through its initial testing. In fact, uh, VFA 22 and 94 with CAG 17 uh, helped out with that uh, late. Uh, last year, 2019, it is back at uh, the test community for, for refinement, and then it is due to hit the fleet here along with the Block 3 Super Hornet. So with the Earth itself, it is in the centerline tank, the nose cone, so you lose a little bit of fuel. Uh, about a third of that fuel tank is uh, filled now with the guts of the Earth. But uh, inherent in the Block 3 package of the Super Hornet, uh, are conformal fuel tanks that go over the shoulders, so you'll gain that gain that range back. Um, and then Erst, uh, again, when you start talking about uh, capabilities and future fights, uh, as already been mentioned, having passive uh, passive weapon systems, passive detective systems, so that the enemy doesn't know that you're looking is going to be key. And I think, again, another success story when we see that uh, Erst hit the fleet. Uh, with regards to how how we'll fight future wars, and the nice thing about the uh, centerline Erst as well is that for for those who've flown with the um, you know the Erst pod, if you will, on your left cheek station, then you know we're all trained if uh, the way you do your tactics to make sure that you don't mask the laser energy when you have a weapon in flight or inbound to the target. So having it on the centerline just has that really nice added capability of that that restriction gets pulled back, uh, and that'll also have a nice tactical effect in how you can adapt tactics for that new centerline Erst. Jethro and Buss, thank you very much for your time. Buss, is always great to have you on the show. We'll hope to have you on the show again soon. And Jero, good luck with your CAT 3 syllabus and your onboarding as DCAG with CAG 7. Keep us posted on how that's going. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, guys. So next week, we're going to have uh, August Cole on the show. His new book, Burn In, that he co-wrote with Peter Singer, is coming out on Tuesday. So look for that episode. That's a lot of fun. And what else we got, Bill? Anything else? Team is working on the July issue proceedings now. The June issue went to the uh, printers last week. So it should be sh showing up in your uh, mailboxes uh, very soon. And for the full coverage of this topic and the other things we've been talking about for your review, if you haven't read your May issue in your mailbox or online, check it out. It's all there. That'll do it for this episode. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll see you next time.